Well, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning, grateful for an opportunity to lift our voices in worship and praise of you. God, we confess that you are the only one who is worthy of our praise. We confess, Father, that we are so quick to give our praise to lesser things. And so God, it is so good for our hearts to be reoriented this morning, to be pulled back so that we might fix our hearts and our gaze upon you. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning in our midst. Lord, that you would, um, by the power of your spirit and your word, Lord, tilt our face back towards you, that we might see all of the beauty of who you are, that we might be reminded and refreshed by the goodness, the kindness, and the mercy of our God. And we pray, Father, that you would speak powerfully now to us in these moments. Do it, Lord, to make us more like Jesus Christ. Do it, Lord, so that you might receive more and more glory, more and more praise from your people. We pray this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. It's good to gather again together, even though it's virtually. It is good to unite our hearts together in our pursuit of the Lord, and we're trusting the Lord's going to meet with us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them and open up to the book of Ruth. Ruth is right after the book of Judges in the Old Testament, very early on in the Old Testament, and it's right between Judges and 1 Samuel. Short little book, four chapters, and it's, it's such a short and small book, and yet it packs a mighty punch. And we're praying this morning that it's going to continue to speak to us in our current situation and to our hearts to remind us and refresh us of who our God is. The theme that we have been looking at is light in the darkness. Light in the darkness. It's interesting that in times of darkness, times of uncertainty, times of confusion, times of pain and, and trial that we all experience in this life, we're inclined to become very self-focused. The, the pressures of life squeeze in on us and we actually become more and more self-focused. We become more and more self-centered. We become more and more selfish. And this is, in a sense, the natural inclination of the sinful, fallen human heart. And we don't have to look very far to see an example of this. Just remember back to a, a few weeks ago when this whole pandemic started. R remember how the shelves in grocery stores were being quickly cleared out of toilet paper and hand sanitizer, how people were in a mad rush to accumulate for themselves all the things they thought were going to be essential for their own personal survival, thinking nothing of anybody else, only of self. It's interesting now that things have settled down a little bit. There's a lot of people who are stuck with stockpiles of things that they no longer necessarily need or can't get rid of or return. It's interesting that we become incredibly self-focused when the darkness seems to close in on us. But what if our response to darkness wasn't a radical form of selfishness, but instead was a radical kindness? What if this radical kindness would not only provide us with some light, some hope, some rest, and some peace in this world, but would actually bring that kind of light to those around us as well? And what if this radical kindness was not some kind of an exception in our lives, some kind of a footnote to our life, but instead was 
becoming increasingly more the norm for how we chose to live in this world in the midst of some sometimes incredible darkness. That's what we see here in the story of Ruth. As this story begins to unfold, what begins in incredible darkness, as we saw last week, we're going to begin to see glimmers of light, rays of light, hope that God wants to hold forth for us. There is in the story of Ruth, especially in this first chapter, a shocking kind of kindness, a surprising kind of kindness, a radical kindness that we are called to take heed of, to pay attention to, and to put into practice in our own lives. As we look at Ruth, we see first, notice this, that radical kindness requires decisive courage. Let's look at the Word of God and let's read it together. Let's read all the way from verse 6 to the to verse 18 together. Here's what it says. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to uh, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I, why, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should um, say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, No, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Here we see in the example of Ruth that radical kindness requires first decisive courage. <clears throat> and here it's without a doubt clear that Ruth shows some unbelievable kindness and some incredible courage. Notice first in verse 6, it forms a kind of transition verse from the darkness that's established in verses 1 through 5, where what we've seen is that there is sin and rebellion as the people of God, Naomi and her husband Elimelech, bring their two sons 
and they, they leave because there's a famine in the land of Israel. And they leave and they go into enemy territory in Moab. And there they, they find only heartache for 10 years. Elimelech dies. The two sons die. And these two daughters-in-law are left barren without any lineage. There's a picture of bleakness and hopelessness and helplessness that's established in these first five verses. And it really sets us up to look at verse six and to see that there is still a ray of hope. There's, there's a glimmer of hope being held out and notice what it says. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. And that's exactly what they longed to hear in the midst of a famine. That God had, had given them food and that God had returned and, and there was provision back in the promised land. It's interesting here that they're working still hard in the fields of Moab trying to figure out life. But God, notice this, the first mention of God seen in this verse here. God sends a messenger to them and the message is one of good news that there is now provision back for God's people. It's interesting that what we see happening here is that God seems to show up at the 11th hour for Naomi and for Ruth and for Orpah. It's so fascinating how God will often do that. He'll wait to the 11th hour. He'll wait to the darkest points of our life, the darkest moments in our life. He'll bring us right up to the precipice, right up to the edge, so that we sense and feel our helplessness, our hopelessness, so that we realize that we need God to show up, that we can't figure this out on our own. That's exactly what God is teaching them here and what he wants to teach us. So often in the darkness of our lives, what God is trying to do is peel our grip off of the things we have placed our hope in, our own human solutions, and he's trying to help us grab a hold of him in a fresh and new and powerful way. And as we see things begin to transition here with this ray of hope, what we see now is that some conversations begin between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And really this is broken down into three kind of distinct units of conversation. The first two, Naomi is speaking to her daughters-in-law and the last one, which is the focus really of this um, first chapter is Ruth now speaking back to Naomi. In verses 7 through 15, we see that Naomi set out with her daughters-in-law, notice this, to return back to the land of promise. We also see here that she begins then, as she's heading off to return to the promised land, she starts by making a plea to her daughters-in-law. You'll notice verse 8, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And notice this, the second mention of God here, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. This is a really interesting statement. She's pleading with them, but she's also kind of praying that God would bless them. She recognizes the kindness that these two women have showed um, not only to, her, to their husbands, her sons, but to her as well. And what we see here is that she prays that God would deal kindly with them as they have dealt kindly as well. 
This here is an incredibly important statement. This phrase, deal kindly, you might want to circle it in your Bibles or make a little note in your Bible. This becomes one of the key themes and the key theological terms in this book. It is certainly the center point of this first chapter, and it will begin to unfold throughout the remainder of this book. Deal kindly, or kindness, some translations say. It's good, but we need to understand this, that in the original language, there's no English word that can really capture all that this term intends to communicate. The word itself is so filled and packed with depth and a thicker sort of meaning to this word. I'll give you a sense of what some have described this work to be. This is the Old Testament word chesed, and it is a covenant term wrapping up in itself all of the positive, positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, it refers to acts of devotion and kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. This is a certain kind of kindness. This is a radical kindness. And again, Naomi recognizes that both Ruth and Orpah have demonstrated great kindness. And what she's saying in using this term is that she recognizes that the kindness these women have showed in many ways is actually a kindness from the Lord himself. That these women have been a sort of gift to her. She's recognizing that these are our good women who have done well. She wants the Lord to repay their kindness with his kindness. It's so clear in this passage that she loves these women and these women love her. There is a real sweet relationship between all of these women. It's been built up over years and years of struggling together, of striving together, of facing adversity together. She loves them and now she pleads with them. She pleads with them to return. Go back to, to your, the house of your mother. Go back and, and find for yourself a husband. Now, you say, why is she saying this? She's trying to care for them. That's what she's doing. She's sensing her own inability to provide for them, to provide a sense of security and hope for the future. And she's wanting the best for them. And she, she understands in this ancient culture that to be a widow meant that you've given up all sort of security. Your future is now potentially very limited. In the ancient world, if you didn't have a husband, you didn't have provision for, a lot, for the most part, unless you went back to your father's home. It's just the way this worked. She needed someone who could provide for her, someone who could supply her with needs, and not only that, somebody who could provide her with a future, a future lineage, a family line, someone to continue their family. To be a widow in the ancient world meant a very hard life. And Naomi knows she cannot offer them a good life. All she has to offer them is potential, a danger, even in traveling back as three um, widows by themselves. She offers them great risk. She offers them a life of potential instability and a life of guaranteed uncertainty. Sounds so appealing, doesn't it? So she pushes on them. She leans on them. Go back where there is at least the hope of a future life. And she even goes on to say, listen, I, I, I can't provide you with a husband. 
She's potentially now appealing to um, the Levite requirement of the people of God that if a husband died, the, the woman would often be married to the next of kin who would then um, produce family line in, in hopes of carrying on the line of his brother. And so she says, listen, I'm too old. I'm too old to have another child. She's probably past the age of childbearing. And even if she wasn't too old, she makes a note here, like, would you wait? Would you wait the amount of years necessary for me to have a son who would grow up and be ready to marry you? Orpah sees the potential danger and the risk, and she agrees, and she says, through tears, this is probably right. And so she returns back to the land of Moab, and she stays there to her mother's house, to her, her father's house, a place of security. And here, what we need to see this is she does simply what's normal. She does what's actually expected. The Bible doesn't condemn her for this. This seems to be, from a human standpoint, a, a wise decision. It's what's expected. Which, by the way, makes Ruth's decision so unbelievably shocking and radical. You see, Ruth here doesn't follow suit. She hears all of this. She understands what's being asked of her and what faces her to an extent. And still, she clings to Naomi and she chooses the harder route. She does so with firmness, with decisiveness. And this requires an immense amount of courage. She doesn't do what's normal. She does what's abnormal. And she shows radical kindness to Ruth. Verse 14, again, notice that. She clings to her. Even after, by the way, what Ruth, Naomi says, excuse me, in verse 13, where she says that she is, is incredibly bitter because of all that's happened, exceedingly bitter. And one of the reasons is because that she believes, notice, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So in effect, she's saying to these women, listen, you don't want to join me. God's clearly turned against me, and I don't want whatever's happening to me to rub off on you. The problem is it actually already has, hasn't it? These two women have suffered greatly. They've lost their husbands. They're not, or Naomi's not the only one who's been in pain, although she's very tunnel-visioned right now. She seems so focused on herself. Again, this is the way we can all be. But what Ruth does is she doesn't have a pity party for herself. Instead, she looks at Naomi, and out of love for her, she says, I, I'm not leaving. To show this kind of radical kindness requires a decisive courage. And everything up to this point has actually been preparation. The, the unfolding narrative has been preparation for what's coming next here in these next verses in verse 16 and following where Ruth speaks up. This is what the text is driving us to focus our attention on. And this is going to be really the, common, the key focus for the rest of our time together this morning. Verse 16, and it escalates here. I want you to notice there's an escalation in community commitment and seriousness. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And this is 
remarkable. For her to say this requires this kind of a radical, uh, decisive courage. And here's an important truth that we can learn from Ruth. Decisive courage is demonstrated in the face of adversity, not in the face of prosperity. It's easy, right, to demonstrate courage when everything seems to be going great, especially when you think of relationships, right? Everybody's, they're, you know, they got their BFFs when everything's going well, but what happens when challenges and trials hit? When we begin to experience pain and adversity, that's oftentimes when we find out who our true friends are, who is willing to stick by us in the midst of difficulty. You know someone is a true friend when they will A, help you move, B, pick you up from the airport or drive you to the airport, and C, I think that's biblical by the way, and C, stick with you when everything in your life seems to be falling apart, when there's no advantage to them sticking by your side, when instead it actually could hurt them to stick by your side. That's biblical. <laughs> you know who your true friends are when your world is falling apart. And when you're not thinking straight and you can say things like, God has done this to me. And when you're not acting right and you are exceedingly bitter, and yet your friends cling to you like Ruth clings to Naomi. And they look you in the eyes and they say with tears, I'm not going anywhere. That is radical kindness. And it's radical kindness that requires decisive courage. This is such a courageous thing to do, and it's so helpful for us to remember this. Again, Ruth knew what she was getting into. She had assessed and evaluated the situation. She understood the facts. She understood the potential danger. She knows things might not ever get better if she makes this decision. She saw the bitterness of Naomi, but what she saw was an opportunity to meet that bitterness with a shocking, surprising, radical kindness. And that's what God wants from us, loved ones. God wants us to look around the world, to see the darkness, to see the bitterness of sin, and God wants us to be a, a dash of kindness. He wants us to be, as Jesus said, salt and light in the world. And kindness is one of those ways that we ought to exhibit that. By the way, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the markers of, of the Spirit of God within us, of our own spiritual growth and sanctification. What an opportunity that God has given to us during this season. I want you just to pause and think about that. In the midst of this pandemic, in the trial that we are facing, God is giving us an opportunity to be a dash of kindness, of radical, shocking, surprising kindness in the world around us. And by the way, I have watched this happen in our church family. I've heard reports of this from so many of you in our church family. I've been the recipient of this. Our family has. Just shocking amounts of kindness taking place within the family of God. And this is the way it should be. We're looking out for one another. We're caring for one another. Meals are being dropped off. Personal phone calls are being made. Driveway hangouts, maintaining social distancing, lest you think I'm trying to force you to do something the government is asking you not to do. Just, just acts of kindness, going above and beyond to serve one another. And I just want to encourage you 
as the people of God in the midst of a trial like this that we're experiencing, the self-isolation can actually turn into a selfish isolation. And we need to force ourselves to look at the scriptures and to, to, to uh, embody the scriptures and to be like Ruth, to show radical kindness to those around us. So maybe I can ask you this question, how can you do that this week? Well, maybe you can dig a little deeper. Who do you know in the midst of this pandemic that is hurting, is struggling, maybe with trials beyond this one that we're all facing? Who do you know that maybe is more susceptible of being lonely or anxious Maybe you know people who are really confused by all of this and really struggling to process it. Well, I want to encourage you to take a, a radical step of obedience and show radical kindness. Place a personal phone call. Drop a meal off. Spend time engaging with those around you. That personal touch is so meaningful during this time of uh, physical isolation from one another. You see, self-isolation does not have to mean self-focus, self-centeredness, selfishness. Look around. Do something. Do something radically kind for someone this week. Radical kindness requires decisive courage to make those kind of decisions, even when it could be harmful to ourselves. Secondly, notice this. Radical kindness requires deep commitment. Deep commitment. Now, this really is the heart of radical kindness. This is absolutely incredible what takes place here. What Ruth says to Naomi is, is, that is stunning, and it's, it's intended. The text is set up to actually cause us to be stunned by what she does and what she says. The kind of commitment she demonstrates here is profound. She says, essentially, I'm committed to you in life and for life. I'm not going anywhere. It's remarkable. She says, where you die, I will die. I'll go to the grave with you. Naomi is, is trying to release them from any sense of commitment. And here, what Ruth does is double down. She goes all in on commitment. I love this. She's... She's tying her life to Naomi's life. She's tying her future to Naomi's future. And catch this, she's committed to another, not primarily to herself and to self-preservation. Wow, what remarkable commitment. But you see, that's what steadfast love and kindness is. It's a commitment to the good of another person. It's looking out not just for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And the depth of her commitment is actually demonstrated with this oath that she makes. Did you notice this? She says this in verse 17, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She binds herself to Naomi by invoking God himself, the God of Israel. Now, this is incredibly important. Uh, and I want to maybe camp out here for just a few moments to talk about this idea of making a statement of commitment. Here, uh, Ruth believes it's important to verbally declare her commitment to Naomi. And I believe there's something we can learn from this. I just want to draw attention to this idea. Making a statement of commitment is, is vitally important in our relationships for a couple of different reasons. Here's the first one. It's for the good of the other. You see, this was Ruth's heart. She wanted to provide a, a degree of comfort and encouragement and hope for Naomi. She wanted her to know that she wasn't alone, and so she bound herself verbally making this statement, this deep commitment to her. 
And I would just say that these kind of statements are so helpful so that others know that they're not alone. They, they hear the expectation of, of our heart for them and to them. It's good for them to know what's, what to expect of us when we verbally commit ourselves to our relationships. By the way, this is what we do in marriage relationships. When we, take, um, when we make those vows towards one another, we're committing, we're verbally stating, here's what you can expect of me. And this can be so helpful in forging deep relationships with one another. One another. But here's the second reason. It's for the good of yourself. Accountability. Here, what Ruth does is she hedges herself in by making this statement. She has now heightened the sense of accountability in this relationship. This kind of accountability is important for us because it will generate and foster greater faithfulness and will help reinforce integrity in our lives so that we will be people of our word. When we know people have heard us make these statements, we should want to honor those statements. And Ruth is positioning herself to show radical kindness. This has huge implications for us as a church, for us as the people of God, for how we function in our relationships with one another, because we are to show great faithfulness and commitment to what God calls us to show faithfulness and commitment to. Now, let me qualify this, lest you get the wrong idea. Not every relationship requires the same degree of commitment. Different relationships require differing degrees of commitment. Our responsibility is to determine the level of commitment required of each relationship that the Lord has given to us. We are to search the scriptures. We are to look and see how God wants us to respond to relationships and commit in relationships. The same, uh, the commitment you show to your wife is not going to be the same commitment you show to your neighbors or even your close friends. That's not the way God's designed it to be. We're not called to be everyone's friend, but we are called to be someone's friend. Everybody is called to be friends with somebody else. So we need to look to the scriptures to see how am I supposed to be committed, um, deeply committed to my spouse, to my kids, to my friends. The book of Proverbs has so much to say about what, what commitment and friendship looks like, and I'd encourage you to go read through that and just to see the sense of commitment that's called, um, that God calls us to through that simple book. We need to ask what does faithfulness look like in, in each context, in each relational context that we have. What does faithfulness look like to the church? What does faithfulness look like in my small group? By the way, this is why we do church membership. This is why we bring people to the front and we do this verbal commitment because we're, we're laying out expectations, but we're also heightening accountability. This is so, so incredibly important. This is why we have a small group covenant. We're entering into relationships with one another and we're trying to forge deeper, more intimate relationships. And so we're, we're putting those expectations out. We're telling people what they can expect of us. We're, uh, we're, we're agreeing to and we're heightening the sense of accountability. Our relationships require a kind of deep commitment that is often not experienced by many. And this deep commitment, this faithfulness to one another, ends up benefiting everybody. By the way, we need accountability in this because every one of us has a tendency to withdraw and to flake out 
Every one of us wrestles with faithfulness in relationships. Uh, our sin again will creep into our lives and we'll become more and more self-focused and self-centered and it will be easy to even sacrifice our own integrity because it's inconvenient to us. All of us struggle um, to be non-committal with being non-committal, but much of the time we also struggle with a sense of false commitment. We struggle to be people of our word, people of integrity. And Ruth is binding herself with an oath to demonstrate a sense of integrity and radical kindness and deep commitment. One of the reasons I've been so thankful in the midst of this crisis is because it seems to have slowed much of life down. I still feel, in one sense, just as busy, but I feel like life has slowed down a little bit. And I actually think that's, that's something to thank the Lord for. In the midst of this season, with many of the, the things that keep us busy off of our plates, with more of our evenings freed up, it gives us an opportunity simply to slow down, to breathe a little, to evaluate our lives a little bit, to rethink our priorities and, and the rhythms of our life that maybe have been out of joint. When it comes to relationships, I think that this season of life that you and I find ourselves in, it, it's a great opportunity to stop and to, to evaluate and to rethink our relationships our relationship with God and our commitment to Him, our relationship, maybe if you're married, to your spouse and what that should be looking like, our relationship with our kids, our discipleship and the time that we invest in them, our relationship with our neighbors and unbelievers and the commitment to share the gospel with them, our commitment to our church and, and to the, those that we are doing life with in the context of the body of Christ. This is a really good moment for us. And we can be inclined to be frustrated by this season of life, but I want to encourage you to take advantage of it. Pause, reflect, rethink. Consider what it looks like to have deep commitment in the relationships that God has graciously given to you. One caveat, we need to manage our expectations in relationships. So often this is the downfall of relationships. We have unspoken uh, expectations of people and then get um, out of joint when those expectations aren't met. So let me just give you this to think about. More often than not, when it comes to our relationships, our kindness will go unnoticed, unappreciated, and unreturned. That's why deep commi commitment must be unselfish at the very heart of it. And that's kind of what we see happening here. Back to the text there in verse 18. Did you notice Naomi's response? When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. I don't know about you, but I read that and I'm like, wow, what a great opportunity for Naomi to look at Ruth and say, thank you so much. I don't deserve this kindness from you, but nothing. It's just utter silence. No reciprocation, no thank you. Now, hey, I really appreciate that. I understand the sacrifice you're making. There's just pure silence. Who knows? Maybe there were some conversations that we're not privy to. I'm sure there were where Naomi expressed some kind of gratitude. I hope there was. But the word of God is silent about this. What we do know is this, that there's nothing offered by Naomi to Ruth in coming with her. There's no seeming benefit to Ruth 
It's not like, you know, it was kind of laid out and you got to weigh the, the cost and the negatives. I mean, everything's negative. It's not like Naomi looked at Ruth, hey, I tell you what, because of your kindness, if you choose to come with me, I'll make sure I find you a, a good boy to marry. I mean, listen, she's in a sense going to be matchmaker. Actually, God is going to play matchmaker. God is going to provide for her in this way with a husband and provision. But listen, there's no immediate benefit being held out to her. And there seems to be no reciprocation in any way. And I just want to remind you that our radical kindness, what makes it so radical is that we offer it without expectation. We offer it without an expectation of a pat on the back, like, hey, well done. We offer it without the expectation of being paid back or some benefit to ourselves. You see, it's unselfish in nature. It is primarily focused on the good of the other. Ruth has this unnatural, shocking, radical kindness. And it's grounded in this sense of deep commitment. Deep commitment isn't dependent upon expectations, but it's dependent instead on a sacrificial love. You see, this kind of kindness imitates, this is the important part here, don't miss this, it imitates the divine kindness that comes from God. The kind of kindness that is undeserved, but it comes with a price. Radical kindness, you see, requires, finally, a definitive cost. A definitive cost. Ruth risks a lot. But maybe you're inclined to ask, isn't she going for the hope of something better? No. She goes as far as to take an oath. She's counting the costs. She understands that this could mean her own death, that this is certainly going to mean danger and uncertainty. She knows, here's my point, she knows what it costs. She's not walking blindly into this in its definitive cost. She understands what's at stake. And what she gave up is absolutely staggering if you think about it. She gave up everything in her past. She gave up her family. She gave up her religion. She gave up her gods. She gave up her home. She gave up her present. She gave up the potential for immediate security in her father and mother's home. She gave up the, the potential for immediate safety and provision. She gives it all up. She gave up her future. She's risking in this moment remaining a widow. She's risking danger in a foreign land. She's going to walk back into the, the nation of Israel where Moabites are seen as the enemy. And she's going to potentially risk living a life as a widow in alienation and ostracization. She gave up the opportunity for a future family, for children. Every relationship costs something. You see, this foreshadows the cost of the Christian life in general where we are called to give up everything to follow Jesus, where we are called to count the costs, to recognize that to follow Jesus means death to ourself. It means giving up what so much of the world prizes and so much of what we've pursued in our unbelieving state and our sinful condition. It means surrendering everything to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this foreshadows the cost of following Jesus right here. Ruth demonstrates to us that the beauty of giving up everything 
Why would Ruth do this? More than Ruth showing affection for Naomi, this is a picture, I want you to see this, of Ruth's heart turning toward God. It's a picture of Ruth's conversion. The closest word we have for conversion or repentance in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word shuv. And that word shuv is used 11 times in this very first chapter, telling us that this is a key thought and theme and theological concept in this first chapter. It's translated here as the word return or turn back. 11 times we see this concept where, where uh, Ruth tells her daughter-in-laws to return and go back to Moab. To turn back. And they declare, no, we're going to return with you to your God and your people. Orpah, she ends up turning back to her, her other gods and her other land. But what we see here definitively is that here, Ruth is different than Orpah. Her heart is different. And she instead chooses to return or turn to Naomi's God and Naomi's People, by the way, that is at the very center of the statements she makes. The author of the book of Ruth is highlighting that her declaration to return to the God of Naomi and to Naomi's people is the very centerpiece, the focal point of this chapter. I love, by the way, that to turn to the God of Israel is also to commit yourself to the people of God. Here we see that Ruth turned to Naomi's God and to the people of God. And this is so beautiful. And it's confirmed, by the way, in chapter 2, where she is spoken of as one who has come to find refuge under the wings of God. Why did she show such kindness? Right? Why did Ruth demonstrate this kind of radical kindness? The simple answer is this, because she had received the radical kindness of God. After all, she had no place in this land. She had no place with the people of God. She was a foreigner. Moabites were distanced from the people of God in a unique way. They were cursed by God because of a number of things that we looked at last week. With the covenant God of Israel, she finds a kind of covenant kindness. She had no claim on God. She didn't deserve his mercy. She had no claim on his provision. And yet she knew that this was a God of kindness. She had seen enough in, in the worship of Naomi, in what maybe Naomi and Elimelech had spoken of about this God, to know this was a God that she could turn to. This was a God that she could put her trust in. This is a God who could rescue, redeem, and save. In the beginning of this account, it's so interesting, isn't it, that God is actually the main player. This is not fundamentally about Ruth. You see, it was God at the beginning, as we saw in verse 6, who sent a messenger with good news. God sent forth to call these people back to himself. God sent the message of good news that the house of bread, Bethlehem, was now being restocked. Come, there's provision. There's a feast awaiting you. God has provided for his people, listen, here's the catch, even when they were unfaithful to him. We expect sometimes, don't we, the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness? 
in our sinfulness and our waywardness, we think, oh, God just wants to repay my wickedness with judgment and wrath. But I want you to consider the way that God describes himself. And really, this is, this is what unpacks the meaning of God's glory. He says this to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, listen, listen, I love this, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There it is. And faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. Listen, listen, what we need to see here is so sweet that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is covenant language. This is the same word, hesed, that is used in the book of Ruth here to describe the kindness of God. There is one, again, Hebrew word underlying this English phrase of steadfast love. And again, it refers to God's special commitment to the people with whom he has gladly bound himself in an unbreakable covenant bond. The word faithfulness used in Exodus 34 here, it gets at this as well. And here's what this means, loved one. Here's what this means. He will never throw his hands up in the air despite all the reasons his people give him to do so. He refuses even to entertain the notion of forsaking us even when we deserve to be forsaken or from withdrawing his heart from us the way we often do to others who hurt us. Maybe you feel like Naomi today. Maybe you've turned away from God for a a long season. Maybe it's been 10 plus years. Maybe it's been over and over again. You've turned your back on God. You've heard the truth. You've known the truth. And you you believe the truth, but you just, you decided you wanted to do what you wanted to do. And maybe, maybe you're thinking, me? Could I actually be accepted again by God after all my waywardness, after all my sin and rebellion? Would God really invite me back? Would he actually take me back? The answer, biblically speaking, is yes, absolutely he will. In fact, before you ever turned to run back to God, he was running after you, offering you provision and hope and healing and mercy. you can return to the Lord. There is no termination date on his commitment to you. You can't get rid of his grace to you. You can't outrun his mercy. Isn't that good news? You can't evade his goodness. His heart is set on you. Return in humility, repenting of your sin, recognizing his grace and forgiveness, and rejoicing in his great mercy. You know, this radical kindness that has this definitive cost to it, this ought to be the heart of God's people. We show kindness because God has shown kindness to us. God has visited you. Ruth is a wonderful example of loving kindness. God would once again, here's the crazy thing, 
show this kind of loving kindness. In the New Testament, we see the ultimate picture of loving kindness. God would once again visit this little town of Bethlehem with bread to feed his people. But this time, it would be the bread of life. And it wouldn't just be for the people of Israel. It would be for all those who are far off. It would be for the whole world. Jesus said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven that you may partake, that you may feed on me and live. Ruth chapter 1, the giving of bread to his people, it, it marks this turning point in the book of Ruth and it foreshadows the giving of bread in Bethlehem hundreds of years later. It is the turning point for the whole world on that day in Bethlehem when the bread of life would come into this world where God visits needy people like you and me. And for some of you today, like Ruth, you can turn to God for the first time. You can experience this moment of conversion. You can turn to God by turning to Jesus Christ. The most radical kindness you will ever receive is the kindness of Jesus Christ, who came into our world of adversity, and he showed ultimate courage before a sinful, rebellious, and broken world to show kindness to people who weren't even looking for it. And upon receiving it, who would oftentimes, uh, uh, it would come across as unappreciated and uh, not reciprocated. And he came at the ultimate cost to himself. It cost him so very much. He didn't just risk being treated with contempt. He was treated with contempt. He didn't just take an oath to maybe die. He willingly, in eternity past, committed himself to the cross out of his steadfast love and kindness for us. That we might enjoy his steadfast love and kindness for all eternity. Christ shows the ultimate courage, the ultimate commitment, and the ultimate cost. And he will show you and I kindness throughout all of eternity. Listen, if you don't know Jesus today, today is the day. Turn in repentance and faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Loved ones, his mercies are new every morning. Ephesians 2, 4, 4 says that God is rich in mercy. And I love what Titus 3, 4, and 5 says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Loved ones, let's with great joy return again and again to the loving kindness and mercy of our God. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, would you renew our hearts again with the beautiful truth of your radical kindness to us in and through Jesus Christ. God, may the mercy shown to us by your great love compel us to remember, to return and to rejoice in all of your loving kindness. God, would you use us to show your radical kindness to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.